Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 68. This is the number we've got to today. It's getting almost more than I can count. I thought you were going to say, oh, it's more than me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mike. (laughs) Well, as you might be able to tell already, we have the uh, three regulars, the original team. The old guard. The old um, people. (laughs) Uh, Michael Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Uh, That didn't come out right. Hello. (laughs) Very good. And Jane Williams. Hello. And uh, me, Graham Tomlin. And uh, we are... Um, sitting in our normal uh, studio with our very fancy microphones and some extra special chairs today. They look like dentist's chairs. We're hoping things will be slightly less painful. Yeah, exactly. But they do, we're going up in the world all the time. And, Somebody um, was telling us that they listened to the first ever God Pod a little while ago mm. and um, how we were sort of sitting around bumbling and clearly <laughs> not knowing what we're doing, unlike the precision and acuity <laughs> of our present state <laughs> <laughs> clearly well, that's what we do every time <laughs> we just hide it better now that's yeah. all so it's probably not a good idea to listen to god pod number one anyway this is 68 so we're, we're, we're getting on quite um, quite well and uh we've got uh, as always some very good questions that have come in and um we're going to try and tackle three if we get through three uh, today and um the first one is a deceptively simple question from uh, martin brown from london and uh, Martin says, and my question is, I know we can't prove God, but if being a Christian is so good for us, why can't we prove it statistically? And uh, I guess the question is that if, it, if, if this is true, what we believe, surely there is there ought to be some kind of evidential basis for showing um, the benefits of being Christian Christian life as being something that is obviously good for you and so on. So um, that's the question. Anyone want to have a go at that one? Over um, to you, Mike. There's <laughs> a picture of glowing health here. A great recommendation <laughs> of And a rather fine tie. Has and a very fine tie. Well, I, I like to dress out for the God Pod because yeah. it matters how you look on the radio. <laughs> um, I suppose I kind of think that the problem with sin is, or one of the problems with sin, is that it makes uh, the world look less like the sort of place God would have made. That the more the world gets separates itself from God, the less like a created world the world looks like. The, the more we do acts that are um, less than loving, the less like a world made by the loving God the world looks. Um, and that's part of the problem, is that uh, it doesn't look like, necessarily, the sort of world that God would have made, because we've made it the sort of world he wouldn't have made. Um, and that's that's the initial problem, I think. So that in this world, um, things are not... We can't tell what's good for us anymore? Is that what you're saying in relation to this question? No, I'm not saying you can't tell what's good, but it's just it's much more ambiguous 
the whole the whole process is more ambiguous. Now, I do think there are some kind of evidential things. I do think there are some st- statistical things come to that. But um, but the reason why you can't prove God, the reason why you can't see God, the reason why the world doesn't immediately look like, oh yes, this, this is a thing that a good God would have made, is because um, it's no longer the way He would have made it. Hmm. I suppose I also want to ask about. I mean, the question is asking why can't we show that it's good for us? Hmm. And I think part of what I want to say to that is building on what Mike was saying is that I don't think we do know what mm-hmm. what is good for us in the world, in the state that it's now in, because we all know that we do things that are bad for us. Eat too much, drink too much, don't get enough sleep, um, don't spend enough time with the people we love. And we all do it day in, day out, knowing that we're doing things that are bad for us. Um, so the question of rediscovering what is good for us in this ambiguous world that we have now made, I think is one of the questions mm. I want to explore a bit more in relation mm. to this mm. topic. And I suppose I mean, I'm just thinking of the Jesus's parable of the wheat and the tares, which obviously Augustine used quite a lot for his understanding of the church um, and the world in, in a sense that the idea is that you know you have this field that was sown with good good wheat and yet a, an enemy has come in and sown the tares in it the tares and the wheat are growing together and um in the parable the the harvest is not made until the end of the age when the tares will be on one side and the, the wheat on the other and i suppose the the point of it is that it's it's not it's not that easy to distinguish between them and it's not that easy to to pull up one without the other in other words they they grow together i mean it's back to your point i guess Mike, that that life as we experience it at the moment is this strange mix of things which, if you like, emerge from the createdness, the good creation that God has made, uh, and things which are working to undo that and distort it. And uh, it's not always easy to tell the difference between those those things. And I guess one of the great tasks of Christian ethics is to try to work out what what comes from creation and what comes from fall. Mm. And it's not always straightforward to tell those things, mm. which means that, you know, we live in a sort of morally rather ambiguous world where it's quite difficult sometimes to tell um, to tell what comes from creation and what comes from, from fall. And that, I think that helps to understand why it's not quite as easy as we might like it to be to distinguish and to be able to tell and to offer clear statistics that says, you know, being a Christian is clearly the best way to live, um, and that uh, that's the way it is. And I think on top of that, sometimes you can suffer for doing the right thing. Mm. Sometimes it is possibly disadvantageous to, to do the right thing in terms of the consequence, the way people treat yeah. you, the way yeah. people view you, all those sorts of things, mm. uh, which also, again, complicates the kind of uh, moral perspective that one might have. Yeah. So part of, of Christian living is that we live in hope. Um, we're supposed to be the the place, the sign and the foretaste of what is not yet fully apparent, which mm. is the kingdom of God. Yep. Um, and so part of our job is is to look for what the rest of the world hasn't, um, isn't mm. able to see yet and yep. work for it and pray for it yep. and um, encourage other people to see where it's going rather than actually demonstrating that it's good for us now. And I think, I, th- I think the other thing I'd want to say is that um, is that we aren't Christians because it's good for us. <laughs> yep. mm. um, we're Christians because of God um, and and God's showing himself to us in, in Jesus and inviting us to be um, co-workers towards that new kingdom. Yeah. But I guess I mean, there, there are some 
statistics that are out there that suggests that, for example, you know, Christians are statistically more likely to be involved in some kind of community action than people who aren't Christians, that mm. generally you can find statistics that say that Christians are generally happier on average than, than, than those who, who are not or, or religious people are generally. But they're always a little bit inexact, uh, those things. And I suppose it's back to this question of, you know, how, what would you measure? Because statistics always tries to measure something measurable. And, um, you know, how would you measure it? Now, mm. you know, so now if, you know, if our picture of the, the totally obedient Christian life, the person who was utterly obedient to God, and that person ended up on a cross, mm. you know, how do you how do you make statistics out of that? Yes. You know, does that equivalent is that equivalent? You know, that's uh, that's good for us. It's not a great career opportunity, is it? Really? really. And who told his followers to expect to be hated? Yeah. Um, Jesus in St John's Gospel does tell us that we're not yeah. um, going to have an easy ride by being his followers. Yeah. And yet, pastorally, one also knows that when people are faithful in their relationships uh, and when they're forgiving rather than resenting it it is good for them it does uh it is better for them they are more integrated they are fighting on less fronts they're torn fewer ways Mm. than when they're going uh ways that that christ recommended we didn't go Mm. so there is a a basically sound um set of guidelines and pieces of advice here which i think we neglect at our peril and which you see that pastorally yeah and i, I think I, I do want to say with the with martin that actually being a christian actually is good for us it is the best yeah. way to live yeah. it's just that we're not very good at measuring that and being able to discern what that actually looks like because sometimes our idea of the good life is actually not a really good life you know, we, we 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 might have sort of images of sort of ease and wealth and pleasure and all those kind of things that we think we would love to have that kind of life and maybe a Christian would get to us get that kind of life, but actually that's not the vision of Christian life that we that that, that we have. And so it's back to this thing: of what would you measure? What would you look for when you're trying to do this statistical analysis? And I think you're looking more for integration than for happiness. Happiness a comes and goes hmm. according to you know if somebody you love has just died you're not going to be happy and that's you know that's yep. a proper response to hmm. be sad hmm. to that event. Um so I think that's not what you're measuring. Uh, and also sometimes doing the right thing may not in the short term make you totally happy. It may be as I say disadvantageous to you and you may lose something you would really have loved to have because it wouldn't have been right to yeah. to go for it um whereas integration i think is is more of a what one of the great things about worshiping one god is that everything within you is pointing the same way mm. everything in within you is aligned and therefore in harmony in principle with everything else within you mm. um and that that is i think a huge a huge integrating factor in the whole psyche Good. Well, thank you very much for that one. And um, we, we're going to move on to our second question, or actually two questions, in fact. And we've got two questions that are related to the same sort of issue. Uh, they come from other exotic places. One comes from Barbados. The other one comes from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So um, we are waiting for invitations to go and visit. <laughs> <laughs> we can if we get the answer the God, right to this the, one. The Godpod Roadshow. <laughs> um, the first one is, um, well, this is the New Zealand one. <laughs> don't know if you can tell but um 
this is uh, from David in New Zealand, who says that a small group of them meet uh, weekly to discuss a verse or passage of the Bible. And um, they had a, a discussion recently on Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And uh, he says, we can understand how Jesus grew in stature, but did he need to grow in wisdom? And how could he grow in favor with God? Was Jesus any less favorable to God as a baby than he was as an adult? Um, So what does that whole question uh, mean? And there's another related question from from Adam. This is from Barbados. We're not jealous, obviously. Uh, (laughs) And Adam says, it's a similar question about the personality of Jesus. And he says, our personality is shaped by our experiences in life, our upbringing, experiences we had in childhood, teenage years, and so on. And uh, we uh, formulate ways of dealing with life. Jesus, as a human being, would have developed a personality and a way of dealing with life, with things in life while here. Uh, So after the resurrection, what can we say about his personality? Is his personality the same as was developed while on earth? Does it revert to how it was before the incarnation? Was his personality different before the incarnation? So these are questions about, if you like, the um, maybe the, the sort of psychological growth of Jesus as a person and how that relates to his divinity and and so on. So, um, and they're very deep questions, aren't they? Because they're about um, whether or not Jesus is a real human being. Yeah, uh, which is um, one of the most fundamental things that we say about Jesus is that he really was a human being as well as being really God, and he remained both of those things without mixing them up. So he doesn't become partly human and partly God. He's fully human and fully God, which is why I think the Luke passage about how he grows is really important. Um, He obviously is beloved of God from all eternity, um, and we are all beloved of God the minute we exist. Um, But Jesus does freely choose he makes choices you see him making choices in those stories about his temptation in the wilderness mm. which um we're, we're recording this in lent so i've been thinking a lot about those stories mm. recently you see that he had genuinely genuinely open choices he could have chosen to be a different kind of mm. person he could have made different choices and that's vital to our understanding of who jesus is so he grows i would argue in favor with god because he continually makes choices to put god at the center yeah. um mm. Uh, this um, that verse comes, of course, at the end of the little episode about uh, Jesus wandering off um, to the temple and the, the kind of trip to Jerusalem, and his parents assuming that uh, he's with them on the way back, and find he's not, and have to go back. And there's a wonderful, wonderful um, Renaissance painting by an artist called Simone Martini in, I think, the Walker Gallery in Liverpool. Um, which is a picture of that moment when they come together again. And uh, Joseph has a look of thunder on his face. (laughs) Mary is distraught and Jesus has his arms folded and has a real adolescent whatever (laughs) look on his face. (laughs) He's thoroughly peeved. And you suddenly realise that, A, that adolescence hasn't changed since the 15th century or indeed the first century. But also that these are part it's again emphasizing jane's point that, that he's a real human being goes through the kind of phases uh, that, that we all go through um and that that is an essential part of what we want to say about him if he hadn't become human we wouldn't have been in touch with the divine mm-hmm. and um that's all part of the the package mm-hmm. well, i think um uh, i was thinking about you know as a parent you think of your own children 
And I mean, my kids are in their 20s now. And, and do I love them more now than I did when they were first born? Well, in one sense, no. I, you know, when, when the child is born, you, you love the child anyway. And um, it's not that your love for the child grows. But I guess what, what does grow over time is is a sense of, you know, they, they, they fill out as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they become not, they don't become someone else. They are still the same person, but they, they, they mature, they, they, they grow. And you, you get a, there's a delight in a parent at seeing a child grow and flourish and develop a personality. And, and so um, I, can, I think I can understand what, it's, what it means when it says he grows in favor with God. I think it's back to what you were saying, Jane. You know, when your children do things and you think, that was brilliant. That was, mm. that was fantastic what they did. I never, never knew they could do that. You know, it's not that God doesn't know what Jesus could do. But as Jesus walks the path of obedience and, and, and does his father's will, um, you can sense that, that almost that growing delight of the father in the son in the same way that we might experience a growing delight in our in our children it's not a it's not that we know there's 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 more favor or more love than you had beforehand it's just a a filling out of that Mm. that same same thing and i I think i suspect that's something of what's being talked about here that obviously reaches its conclusion right there's various stages of it the baptism of course is one stage where this declaration is made this is my son whom i love and then, of course, on, on the cross in Gethsemane, when um, again there's that sense of, of approval, and then finally, of course, the resurrection, which in a sense is God's final stamp of, uh, of favor and approval upon upon Christ, having made that journey through life. And it's important for us, isn't it, to um, to hear about God's delight in Jesus growing up? Because again, some of us can sometimes give the impression that we think the perfect Christian is um, childish forever. Mm. Uh, and this passage suggests that's really not true, that actually what God loves the way that people grow up and interact and and um, step into their own role in 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 God's purposes, not not always simply um, acting as puppets for God. And I think we often forget that being a human being, he lived in time mm. and therefore developed through time. And we assume that, you know, aged four, he could have, designed the space shuttle mm. um, but in fact he didn't know about such things didn't know about the laws of gravity and, and all the rest of it um, and uh, so he had to grow in wisdom because he was pretty much a blank sheet when he was born in terms of now of course he had a prehistory um, but but I think part of the incarnation is is not living with resources that are available to all of us, but not probably more than that in yeah. some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we make of the other question, with the one connected to the resurrection? And uh, I mean, just to remind you, the, the question was about um, how we understand the personality of Jesus in the resurrection. Um, you know, he's shaped by his choices and things that happened to him over over time. Does that personality transfer into his resurrection Life, and I guess it's also a question about our own resurrection too. In that, you know, what sense do our personalities um, continue into resurrection life as well? I think personality is is something about the particular, isn't it? Um, Jesus, from all eternity, had a had a character, and he had had a, for want of a better word, history. Mm. Um, but. But a personality is is something that has a particular human being he w- he would have had with a particular uh, gender and with a particular uh, f- 
upbringing and a particular first century context and a particular genetic makeup and a particular kind of body that is what shapes your personality so it's something that he wouldn't in that sense have had from all eternity so it's again it's something that grows uh, from from conception onwards Um, and I I think that's something he's not going to leave behind Uh, we we talk about the incarnation as being him assuming Uh, flesh assuming our nature taking it on board and and never more to let it on, let it go says the early the early prayer um, and I think that's true of the personality and the experience that he picks up he's he's forever shaped by not in any way marred by but forever shaped by everything all his interactions and the cross and the resurrection um, for, for eternity so in a sense the answer to the question does Jesus's personality revert to what it was before the incarnation is no it doesn't mm. because actually something has happened to the, the the logos, the word in the incarnation, that it, that actually is taken on flesh, and that as a result of that, in the ascension, we're talking about the humanity being brought into to God, ascending to the right hand of the Father. So, in a sense, um, you know, and if we if we do talk about the ascension as the the you know the humanity being brought into the presence, into the the, the being of God, if you like. Um, then it says we have to talk about the particularity of Jesus' humanity being being included within that, not a sort of generic humanity, because actually we don't really it's very difficult to think about a generic mm. humanity without a particular personality. But I'm I'm not sure that I would be happy to say that something about the Logos changes. Mm-hmm. Um and, and we can go into that in more detail <laughs> if you like. Um, so I think I would much prefer to say that um, Logos, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, indeed all, all persons of the Trinity do not live sequentially in time in the way that we do. Um, and uh, the history of Jesus, the human person, is lived as our lives are, sequentially in time. But that that is taken into et- eternity so that there isn't a before and after Jesus in God. Yeah. Jesus is always um, the, the, the aspect of God that we see. Um, yeah. Uh, and therefore nothing in God changes because of the incarnation. Mm. Although, the, although the genuine human life of Jesus is a genuine human life with real choices, mm. it's just that if you think of eternity as sort of completion, mm. um, everything has, is complete in eternity. Uh, that doesn't mean that it didn't really happen yep. as we're experiencing it, um, but that God is not experiencing it the way yep. we are. Is what yeah. I would want to argue. <laughs> very, very you might have to, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I would have Thomas Aquinas and most of the, the go, major go. Christian theologians yeah. on my side. Yeah, you'd need them. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you know, is, is it? I mean, it, is it not the case though that when you know, in the incarnation, um, humanity and divinity are joined in a way that is not true in Adam? Absolutely. That in Adam. Adam is a created being, if you like, separate from God in that sense, related to God but separate from God. And in the incarnation, humanity and divinity are uh, are joined in a quite distinct and unique way. Now, I think you're right. I mean, we're talking about things that are quite difficult to to describe here because in one sense we have to do it in terms of time because we experience it like that and we think of everything back to the beginning of, of, of time, the origins of humanity. We think forward to the... Resurrection. We have to kind of think on those those that sort of linear sense, and in that sense, we can talk about. Perhaps we can talk about you know that 
what we shall be, or at least what humanity shall be, is you know what, what Christ brings is this union of divinity and humanity, which is not there in humanity outside outside Christ, uh, or as in Adam, as it were. Um, I, I think also, I mean, from our own experience as um, as human beings, pastorally, it's not good to want to get back to how we were before some difficult experience. No. You, we want to come through it out the other side, um, having learnt from it, grown through it. Um, we don't want to get, get back to how we were before. So we take our experiences with us. We take those and they become part of us. Hopefully they become integrated and healed in the process over time. Um, but And it seems to me that that's similar to what Christ does. He doesn't jettison all that he's um, experienced from his interaction with humanity. He takes that with us. He, he Otherwise it would be a bit like um, shaking somebody's hands and then washing your hands. He doesn't do that. Uh, he interacts with us and that's part of who he forever is. I think though that may Jane may feel that's getting close to. No, no, I'm quite happy with that. Just okay. don't go any further, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, but I, I think that's one of the important Just stop insights. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> one of the important insights of the resurrection, isn't it, is that the marks of the nails are still there. Yes. Um, it isn't um, something that Jesus put on for a bit and took off. No. Um, that's what mm. the relationship between the Father and the Son looks like when it's lived in history. Yes. And the ascension means that we can say there's one of us at the right hand of the Father. And we, and now we know that was always so. That this is the one in whose image yeah. we were okay. made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm happy with that too. Okay, mm, <laughs> I'm not quiet, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure, not sure we're going to get much further. With this today. Um, but it's a really interesting question. It's a very, and, very um, interesting question. Uh, I'm sure we'll return to them in one form or another. <laughs> I think there's a kind of pattern to God pods. We actually keep on coming back to the same, same, same old issues time and time again. Well, it's partly because uh, people think, hang on, you didn't really answer that yeah, question, exactly. and they That's ask right. it again. So do ask that question again, and we'll keep arguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, there's one more issue that, um, or one more uh, set of questions that we thought we'd tackle today, which is one um, uh, around the whole area of um, fellowship. And uh, community as Christians, and there's one here uh, which has a um, simple question. Um, that uh, this is someone saying that. Um, but yeah, I, I know that Christians are meant to have fellowship, but is it compulsory? <laughs> is is compulsory? Is f- Christian fun compulsory? <laughs> um, and this um, person says, I, I, I mean, hermits managed. Uh, there have been solitary Christians who've lived over the the years. Is fellowship a compulsory thing? Particularly maybe if you're a slightly more introverted type of person, doesn't particularly like big crowds of people, everybody being jolly and so on. Uh, and that relates to the other question, which um, uh, came in from um, someone called Christoph, uh, who asks, uh, I, I, I have a real problem with church these days. The main service seems to be growing more and more into Sunday school with jolly songs played over the PA and a chatty presentation given. While the solemn rites and spiritual atmosphere of the communion are pushed aside, we hardly recite the Lord's Prayer or the Nicene Creed anymore. I want to support my church. I want to stick with it, but I feel it's leaving me behind. And um, it's all very well appealing to the young. I'm not that old myself, he says. But the casual chattiness doesn't always work either. And I suppose the couture is slightly related. You know, This idea of a, is a... Is a very clubbable sort of fellowship, everyone being jolly together. Is that really what Christian fellowship's about? Is it essential? Is it compulsory or whatever? I think that's the first problem, isn't it? That we associate fellowship um, with with jollity, uh, sometimes with rather forced jollity. Mm. Um, 
rather than with the whole range of human emotion, which is what genuine fellowship should be. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. Um, and, and unfortunately, we seem to have lopped off bits of our own emotional uh, states as being invalid in some ways, and therefore lopped off bits of the emotional state of the corporate life as well. Mm. Um, and our worship is often within fairly narrow, fairly narrow constraints. Whereas if you look at the, the Psalms, you get the whole range of human emotion mm. um, from kind of anger at God to joy to with everything else in between. And I think that's part of the problem. It's not quite answering their question, but... The hermits, I mean, most of the hermits that I know and have read about, um, although living physically solitary lives, um, actually live very much in fellowship, that they talk about um, the the range of interactions that actually form their their hermit lives, um, not just with God, but with... Um, demons um, with uh, the whole pressure of intercession most of the hermits I know I suspect the people who keep the world up with their prayers Mm. so um, to be on your own is not necessarily to be out of fellowship Um, but I suppose the thing about the hermits is on the whole they were not running away from people they were called to a particular Mm. kind of life Um, and I do know the feeling from my own experience of just longing to run away from a lot a group of very jolly Christians Um, (laughs) which is not a (laughs) a healthy healthy, uh, it's a bit like the the Monty Python sketch wasn't about the hermits convention they had a whole lot of hermits going around with kind of loincloths and staves (laughs) and uh, interviewed one and said what do you like about being a hermit said well you meet people <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suspect in some ways there's actually quite a lot of truth to that. When you yeah. read, you know, about the Desert Fathers, they are actually often meeting up for spiritual yeah. advice with each other to pray with one yeah. another. Um, it, it's not quite the, the ex- exclusively solitary life that, yeah. I mean, that people. Most of the sort of eremitical com- communities were actually communities. Yeah, there were people who lived on their own during the week, but actually came together at weekends for the Eucharist for for worship. And were much visited yeah, exactly, <laughs> by yeah. people seeking Chased advice. Chased around by yeah. people who wanted <laughs> a word of wisdom from the Abba down the road. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. I suppose the other, the other thing is what we, what we mean by, by fellowship. Because and I think we, in the New Testament, it's more to do with relationship rather than fellowship. Fellowship sounds a very, it's what we do when we have a service and we sing jolly songs and, and so on. Um, and other ones, caricature, and other ones too. There's some, there's some good ones too. Miserable ones, but this <laughs> is his lend after all. That's true. But there, um, there's much more to fellowship than just what we do in a in a service. And I suppose you, you look at the pictures of the the church in New Testament times, and the instructions given to the, the Christians are quite interesting. I think because they're not just about what you do when you're in a service; it's to do with what you do when you're in relationship with each other. So you have, you know, this is Colossians three. Therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and so on. So and that, those are the kind of things you need when you're in constant relationship with people. So it's much more to do with um, not particular events, but a set of relationships in which you mm. you live. And I think that probably is essential for Christian life in some form or another. And obviously we have different personalities and some of us love lots of company and need people around all the time. Others um, don't. But I, I, I think 
some form of relationship with uh, other Christians is pretty important for us because other Christians shape us. How else are we going to be shaped into the image of Christ if not by other people who have parts of that image developed in their lives that we don't? It seems to me fellowship is one of the ways in which we change as people over time as we watch other people who have qualities that we don't and we imitate them and we, we, we copy them and so on. It's probably fair to say, isn't it, that it, most traditional church um, of, the, of the last sort of 50 years has suited introverts more than extroverts, mm. most traditional church styles of worship and 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 so on. Um, and, and it may be that we are now going a little bit too far to the other extreme and, and doing church that more suits extroverts. Mm. Uh, and and um, I, I do um, understand what this... Um, person is saying about losing that sense of the the, the mystery and the beauty and the order of liturgy mm, sometimes because mm, mm, um, yep. we're going so much for for chumminess and I think uh, we do need to get that balance right. Of course, Jesus, God is very close to us and is our friend and our brother and our companion. But but also, God is God, um, and needs to be. We need to take our shoes off before we can approach him. And and, and I think. All churches need to be trying to get some of that balance in the way we present worship. I think I think that's right. I sympathise hugely with both questioners, yeah. really, because I think there are churches and ways of doing church that that try to force people into one particular psychological yeah. model, and people don't fit, and and that's quite hurtful when you are trying to be forced into something by by an organisation one wants to be part of. Mm. But on the other hand, we all, regardless of our psychological makeup or emotional preferences, are, you know, we need people to notice when we're struggling or hurting and to encourage and help. Uh, and that's not an extra introvert thing. Yeah. Every human being needs that. Any human being can do that and offer that. And that is community and that is fellowship and that yeah. is church. Yeah. And I do think it's quite important to say that actually church is compulsory for Christians in a sense. It's mm. essential for Christians that we are not saved alone. Alone. We're not saved in isolation. Yeah. You know, we are in we're saved by being in Christ, which means being part of his his body, which is the church. And and, and outside the body of Christ, which is I suppose the point that Cyprian was making back in the early church, outside the church there's no salvation. Now in one sense there's a wrong way of understanding that that makes it a very institutional thing that, you know, you have to be a sort of paid up member of the church and everything else but i think he, he had a point in the sense that that it is actually it's in its christ's body that that, that image of the, of the church as christ's body and it's our being in christ that it's that that's the, the claim we have to salvation and outside of that mm-hmm. then um it's something very very different and also you're limiting yourself to your own angle on god whereas if you put yourself in a community of people who are Opening themselves to God, uh, you, you you see a much you, know, you see other people's angle, and and you your limitations are limited. But also, I think we should all assume that we have something to give. To give them, yeah. Um, and if part of what we we're giving is um, our discomfort with a particular way that things are being always done, that that can be a valuable gift if it's offered in humility and offered with a genuine love for the community. Actually, being able to say. Well, could we occasionally use liturgy, you know, use the Lord's Prayer? Could we occasionally say the creed? Would that sometimes be helpful? Mm. Um, 
it, it can be an offering. Um, so we we don't go to church just for what we can get out of it, but also for what mm-hmm. without us we'll be missing something mm-hmm. that we're we're giving to the body of Christ. It's back to your you're big on this point, Jane, aren't you? We don't do it because it's good for us. <laughs> we do it because of God, basically. Because it's of God. Yes. I mean, there's no other point, is there? I mean, why why be a Christian if there is no God? <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, on that note of <laughs> profound wisdom, <laughs> <laughs> we always look to Jane for profound we wisdom, do. don't we, Michael? We do, we do. Obvious wisdom. So, um, I think that brings an end to GodPod 68. So uh, thank you again, Michael and Jane. Thank you thank very you. much. And um, goodbye from all of us. And we'll be back again with GodPod 69 before too long. That was GodPod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.